0: This is the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast. Discussions and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Carter Roberts of the World Wildlife Fund, speaking at the symposium Law and the Environment, designing a transatlantic agenda. On January 7, 2009, the Atlantic Council of the United States, in cooperation with LexisNexis, held a symposium in New York City on law and the environment, designing a transatlantic agenda. The goal of the symposium was to explore U.S. and European approaches to environmental regulation and international environmental law as a precursor to discussing how the United States and European Union might better cooperate in protecting the environment. Speaking at the symposium dinner was Carter Roberts, president and chief executive officer of the World Wildlife Fund. Mr. Roberts joined World Wildlife Fund as Chief Conservation Officer in 2004 and was named to his current position the following year. Here is Carter Roberts.
1: First, I do want to thank Andy and Laura for uh, this evening and uh, for inviting us to come. It's much appreciated. I, I regret that I was unable to make the session earlier because it looked like a great one. There is, um, it's rare that you be able to, you're able to go to a place where everyone can sit around one table and talk about such an interesting set of issues. And I would have learned a lot from it. I also wanted to make a confession early on, which is I am not a lawyer. <laughs> Thanks for the applause. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, and it's interesting because almost all of the CEOs of environmental groups in the United States are lawyers. Almost all of them, and it reflects the fact that most of the groups were created in the '60s, when the business of environmental protection was all about creating laws. It was all about legislation, and so when you look around and you see Francis Beinecke, Fred Krupp, Steve McCormick, different leaders in different places, they're all lawyers, and it's the rare to have someone who doesn't have the rigor of that background, and I'm one of the people who slipped through the cracks. Um, And I do have a business background, and um, I am not going to offer you a lot of trenchant analysis of the legal structure of transatlantic treaties. But I do want to talk about, I don't want to offer you a running advertisement about WWF. I am going to tell you a little bit about what we do. But I would like to reflect on this extraordinary moment in which we find ourselves. I've worked in this field for 20 years. There has never been a moment like the one that we are in the middle of today, uh, for a whole lot of reasons that I'll talk about. And particularly recently, in the past eight years, I think most of us have felt like we've been in the wilderness. Suddenly, a whole variety of factors are converging to make things possible. I started off. In the business world, I went to business school. I actually went to my um, business school reunion this past June. And there is a professor there named Howard Stevenson, who is professor of entrepreneurship. And, and his, there's a series of lectures at our business school at the reunion. And everybody came to his because the title of his was Make Your Own Luck. And it was his insights into how to make your own luck. And his basic message was to invest in your time and your money in those things that are certain. It's not about taking risks. It's figuring out what's going to happen and then betting on those things. And he took a poll of about 600 Harvard Business School graduates all sitting in the audience and said, what are the things that are most certain in the coming years? And the number this is back in June. so mind you, this is before everything happened. The number one thing that everyone talked about was inflation. But that <laughs> uh, that was the most certain thing. The second most certain thing was China that everyone talked about. The third most certain thing was climate change. Now this is kind of amazing when you think about the context and the fourth was resource scarcity and the conflicts over resources in the world which completely blew me away <laughs> because our work at WWF is largely about the last two things but it creeps into a lot about what China begins to look like in the in the next, in this century and then it creeps into a lot about what the economy looks like although they're not talking about inflation now they're talking there's no certainty at all right now. And people are trying to sort that out. You've all probably read, or you got for your uh, holiday presents, Tom Friedman's new book. Uh, I don't know how many copies of it you got. Uh, I have friends who've gotten three or four. It's hot, fl- flat, and crowded. And, um, and it's a great book because it, I think he nails it in articulating the two greatest issues of our century, which is climate change and resource scarcity. But he does it in the context of globalization, and he frames out a solution, which is all about remaking the US economy around solutions to these problems. And um, how do you more efficiently uh, catch fish, produce fish, produce timber, extract minerals, how do you more efficiently use less energy? And how do you build an economy and, a, and, a, and new businesses and markets around those issues? And believe it or not, for an organization that started off trying to protect pandas and rhinos, a lot of what we do is about that. We were started as a global organization. We work in 100 countries. We, we were started to protect fuzzy animals. I ask, We've got one of the most recognized logos in the world, one of the top 10 brands in the world, including. Uh, Nike and uh, Coca-Cola. You know that Fanta is one of the top 10 brands in the world? The Red Cross, uh, the, uh, the Olympic rings. We're one of the top 10. You can go in many places around the world and see our Panda logo, and it stands for something. It stands for integrity. It stands for caring about the environment. It stands for solutions. That's what people tell us. And we guard our logo. And the, the, one of the questions that we talked about earlier tonight is whether or not we use our brand and our logo to change behavior as much as we could. But it's one of our best assets. The other assets we have is we have people on the ground in all these places around the world. We have people in the Arctic, the heart of, uh, the, heart of the Congo, Borneo, the Amazon, the, the world's great coral reefs. We also have people who work on policy issues in Brussels and DC and Kuala Lumpur and um, in Beijing. We have an office in downtown in the Forbidden City. And we also have people who are experts in markets, who understand agricultural commodities, fisheries, forestry, think about markets, and think about how to tip markets. And so we were a major player in creating the Forest Stewardship Council, which created a standard for certified extraction of timber, the Marine Stewardship Council, which if you go to Whole Foods and you buy seafood with a little blue stamp on it, a little blue fish, it means that seafood was caught sustainably. And we're now creating standards for palm oil, cotton, soy, and the rest, because those are the major forces that are destroying the places that we care about. And so we work with Coke and Walmart and Deutsche Bank and all these businesses around the world and thinking about how do you shift investment flows and how do you shift markets toward more sustainable forms of production. I want to go back to climate change. We also work on climate change. One of the most interesting things about the work that we do is, I am part of a global community of people who all work for the same organization, who all have very different perspectives on these issues. So we have four million members, three million members in Europe. We have a million members in the U.S. And uh, there's a, I gather in one of the undertones of this, actually one of the explicit parts of this conversation is Europe and the U.S. and the differences. And so as we try to resolve solutions across our organization, we come into the same kind of debates that you talked about today, which are the, the perspectives in Europe, the perspectives in the U.S., the perspectives in Malaysia and Beijing and the rest. And we are a uniquely global organization. And we confront the same global issues. What I've found, more often than not, is the rest of the world continues to look to the US at the same time that it has diminished confidence in the US to be a leader in solving these problems. Because the big companies and the big footprint is the US. And I've had colleagues describe us as the fat boy in the canoe in terms of our consumption and the impact it has on the rest of the world. So when we buy cars, or when we buy products, and we buy seafood, and we buy uh, things that have palm oil, the impact all around the world is enormous. And the problem we have right now is China is emulating our example. And so um, the increased demand for protein in China is driving the increased production of soy in Brazil which is cutting down all the trees in the Amazon at an enormous rate. And so if you want to save the Amazon, you've got to go to China. And ultimately, you have to go to the US, because it is our example, and China's uh, following it, and these massive global trade flows that are destroying the biggest forest and the richest forest on Earth. So um, that is a lot of what we do. So um, back to climate change. One of the things that uh, we were talking over dinner, what would be interesting to you? An advertisement for WWF would not be so interesting. That was the advice I got from my dinner mates. Uh, What what would be interesting is a discussion of the role of an NGO in solving these problems. Because um, we occupy a unique space in the constellation. Um, And it's interesting that when I go to places like Malaysia or Europe or elsewhere, governments and businesses care very, out of proportion of what we believe, care very much about what WWF thinks and what, it's, what it does. And we have the ability to hold a mirror up to institutions. And we also have an obligation to help craft solutions. One thing that's been very interesting over the past month has been the degree to which the new administration of the US has sought the input of NGOs. How many of you have been involved in any of the meetings with the transition teams over the past month? I've been in four transition team meetings in the month of December with a number of other institutions. And it's been breathtaking that this administration has decided to reach out to the NGO community and seek its advice in guiding its policy decisions in various areas. The reason I asked is I just want to see whether what I'm going to tell you is news or interesting And what's been, um, I want to talk about the climate change meetings, and I want to talk about Marine. And uh, um, in the climate change meetings, this administration has been very clear that the number one priority is the stimulus package, the most immediate priority. And any ideas we have to help guide how the money is going to be spent would be welcome, particularly since there has been the commitment on the part of the president-elect to build a new economy based on Tom Friedman's advice. Right now, there's a lot of work being done on the analysis of low-carbon technologies that if you parse them, create jobs in the US. And there's some surprises there. If you provide incentives for people to buy compact fluorescent bulbs, guess where the jobs get created? They get created in China. If you pass legislation to really push solar guess where the jobs get created? They get created in Germany. Because China and Germany own the means of production there. But if you talk about insulated windows, guess where the jobs get created? They get created in the US. And if you talk about LEDs and other forms, other things, jobs get created in the US. And so one of the interesting things that need to be, that that there's a discussion right now about, I'm not saying this is great economic theory, but Solving employment is a big issue right now. It's a big political issue. And so this administration wants to put in place a stimulus package that creates jobs. The second order priority is a cap and trade system that this administration has committed to. Carol Browner talks about in, in the second public appearance that the president-elect made was a videotape for a governor's conference in LA that I attended with Schwarzenegger, Sibelius, Christ, and yes, the governor of Illinois to uh, talk about climate change. And it was the second public appearance where where President-elect Obama said, we are committed to cap and trade, we're committed to measurable reductions in CO2 emissions, and we're committed to a global deal. It's his second public statement, which is extraordinary when you think about all the choices that he could have made. The third is the global deal. This administration is committed to being part of a global deal eventually But it is quite clear on the order of sequence. And I think you talked about that earlier today. I don't know if you did. I saw that on the agenda. But it is painfully aware of what happened to Vice President Gore when he returned from Kyoto and got no votes from a Senate that needed to have a two-thirds majority to ratify a treaty. And so the administration, and I think the world more generally, is increasingly clear that there is not a global deal without domestic US legislation. And those two are very much have to go hand in hand. What we see is a lot more sophistication about bringing that along, largely because this government, the leadership, the new administration, they're all senators. And so there is a much greater degree of sophistication and, um, and sensitivity to that, in addition to the fact that What happened in Kyoto simply can't be repeated again. Our observation as an organization is a global commitment helps drive domestic legislation in Europe. In the US, ironically, it may have the opposite effect. And so this timing issue is critical in terms of um, it's hard to believe that there will be domestic legislation without an economic recovery, and it's hard to believe there will be a global deal without domestic legislation in the US. And so all of these things. Uh, have to be sequenced and and we also have to manage expectations across the Atlantic and also with China. Um, Tomorrow I take the train back to DC and I meet with the head of our global climate program from Denmark and I meet with the head of our climate program in China and we are meeting with congressmen, senators and also members of the transition team to try to build a stronger dialogue across the Atlantic and across the Pacific to manage expectations and to think about the sequencing because um, in the past the expectations have been unrealistic and that's a part of our role as an NGO okay there are a couple other things I wanted to say Uh aha the other interesting thing with this new administration is the role of science and the science has become more and more irrefutable that climate change is real that it poses an enormous economic and security risk to us. And from our point of view, for WWF, it poses the risk that every degree increase puts at high risk of extinction 10% of the species on Earth. So it's not just the polar bear, although the polar bear is the best example. There are lots of other species that are put at risk. But increasingly, um, we need to make the argument based not only on science, but on economic principles and security principles. I had a, um, a meeting recently. We pulled together a meeting of NGOs with Bob Zellick, who's the new president of the World Bank. And you'd be interested to know that the head of every major environmental group made the argument to the World Bank of uh, the importance of conservation, not for biodiversity, but for economic stability and political stability. And at the end of the meeting, Zellick turned to us and said, have you guys forgotten about the animals? What about the animals which is a really interesting role reversal when you think about what the world bank is about and what the environmental movement is about. So one thing I want to reflect on also is we we had a meeting with the transition group working on oceans. It was kind of co-chaired with uh, Admiral Watkins and Leon Panetta. We talked a lot about the different things that you can do in the oceans and at the end of the day at the end of the conversation, we all reflected on the fact that the most compelling argument for the law of the sea, and what we were arguing for, which is an ar- a framework for Arctic governance. And you all know that as the ice melts in the Arctic, that's the next gold rush, and it's going to be the, the biggest conflict in the world around ocean issues, so it's around resource extraction in the Arctic. Um, that the, the, the most powerful argument is a geopolitical one, it's a, it's a security one, in that we should be working much more closely with the new NSA chief, Jones, in making that argument because he really understands that issue and gets it. And we need to become much more adept at making the argument that climate change and resources are all about security. We recently had a, um, a symposium at WWF, and we invited um, Kurt Campbell who has done some really interesting work on security issues and environmental issues. And he asked the audience, what do you think is the amount of time any president spends with environmental advisors, as opposed to security advisors? Yeah. And it's probably a 100 to 1 ratio between the two. And then he, he reminded us of what was the biggest motivation of the US for the creation of the US highway system and the massive investment. And it was all about fleeing the major cities in the event of a nuclear attack. And then we started talking about the wars that are being fought in the world, whether it's the Congo or elsewhere, over natural resources. What's going to happen to the Arctic? What's going to happen to the Carl Triangle and elsewhere? And the fact that we need to make common cause with those people who understand security issues and economic issues in framing the environment, not just about polar bears and fuzzy animals, although that's our basic motivation, but the larger issues that face society as a whole. And so right now, where I sit with WWF, that is our major focus, is making those connections with uh, a different set of constituencies so we can combine the biodiversity argument with the fundamental economic issue and the security issues, so that as this new administration, and the governments that it engages. As it seeks to solve the economic crisis, we help it seek not just short-term solutions, but to help build an economy and a foreign policy that reflect what we want the world to look like long term. And that's what our work is really all about these days. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast with Carter Roberts of the World Wildlife Fund, speaking at the symposium Law and the Environment, Designing a Transatlantic Agenda. Visit the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center and all our communities at wwwlexisnexiscom communities. The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Center podcast Copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Severe Incorporated. LexisNexis, Total Practice Solutions.